Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, let's read chapter 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, for its faith in charity and patience, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober and love their husbands, to love their children. To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. That's going to be fun. (laughs) That the word of God be not blasphemed. You never thought those two two statements would be set side by side, did you? (laughs) Be obedient to your husband so God is not blasphemed. (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is going to be great. Verse 6, young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. It's interesting how these three chapters go back and forth between God, our Savior, and Jesus, our Savior. This book is a, pr- provides a great series of proof texts for the deity of Jesus Christ. Is it God that saved us or is it Jesus that saved us? Yes, <laughs> it was both. Jesus is God. So, so it goes back and forth in that way. Verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Who did it appear to? All men. Who got left out? Nobody. That means everybody to some extent in some way has had an opportunity to take advantage of the grace of God that bringeth salvation. So uh, no excuses. Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, see, that's the problem. When that salvation is made manifest to all men, alongside it comes the reality that you can't live like a devil. 
well, we don't want that. <laughs> and, and so they want to get rid of it immediately. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. But who wants to do that when there's so much fun to be had? Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope, glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself and be repetitive, but do you see the progression appeared to all men? And it revealed to them, it taught them that there's, a, there's an ungodly way to live and there's a godly way to live. And if you belong to Christ, you should live the godly way to be here and you're going to answer to him. And uh, it would be a fearful thing to have lived ungodly and then have him standing in front of you. <laughs> that, that, that would not be good. Not only would it be shameful, it, it, it should, that should, you should fear that, that possibility. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. You don't want to anger him. You want to please him. Now, now this is all set aside from the fact that we're washed in the blood and, and, and we're made righteous in Christ and all those wonderful things. But there is, still, there is still the outworking of your daily living and the fact that you're going to face that God someday. That should be taken very serious. That is not something to toy with. Not something to play with. So verse 14, who gave himself for us, that that should motivate you and encourage you, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And that's all iniquity, not, not the past ones, not the present ones, but past, present, and future. That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. And that is the reality of the Christian life. It's not about going to heaven. Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you, and when I come back, I'm going to take you unto me. He just said here that he bought you, he, he paid for you with his own blood so that he could, he could have to himself a, a peculiar people. The, the aim or the goal is not heaven. I mean, that, that's just a, that's a minor byproduct of the fact that you get to be with Jesus Christ for the rest of, your, for the rest of eternity. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all Authority, let no man despise thee. Now, when you can figure out how to do that last part, you let me know. <laughs> how do you not allow men to despise you? Um, I don't know, but the Lord expects you to do it. <laughs> so, all right, back to verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. But speak thou things which become sound doctrine. Now, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, belabor it too much. Um, We've talked about sound doctrine. I've taught it in TBIs, and I know it's in my notes here. I'm just going to mention it at the beginning, and then we'll move on. Um, but sound doctrine is distinct from doctrine. Doctrine alone is just what you teach. It's a teaching. So when you teach someone doctrine, hopefully you are getting your doctrine from the Word of God and then presenting it to people. That's the purpose of discipleship. That's the purpose of these classes. Uh, it's the purpose of, of TBIs. It's to try and impart to you Bible doctrine. Sound doctrine is very different. Sound doctrine is more practical. It's your daily life. It, it doesn't, sound doctrine is not concerned with your, your stance on baptism. <laughs> That's doctrine. Sound doctrine is, is concerned with your attitude, the way you live, being honest, that, that's, that's the practical outworking of your doctrine. That's what sound doctrine is. Now, the purpose of this, this first phrase, it begins with the word but. The purpose of this is to demonstrate a sharp contrast 
between Titus and the group being described in chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1 real, real fast. Um, actually, let me just, I'll just give you the verses and tell you what it describes because we've got a lot of ground to cover. So we won't go back and read them. Plus, you, you, I'm assuming you've already been through chapter 1. <laughs> Pastor, was that the last class that Pastor Keith taught? Okay, so in Titus 1 verses 4 through 9, it describes the qualifications of an elder or a bishop as your friendly neighborhood motivator, I guess you could say. I'll go ahead and mention here that pastor is never mentioned in the entire book ever in any way. Now, I know it's often taught in Baptist churches that a bishop and a pastor are the same thing. You wouldn't get that from the Bible. You have to make that connection exist. It doesn't exist in the Word of God. In Titus chapter 1, you see very clearly that that an elder and a bishop may very well be the same thing. Uh, There's kind of two ways to look at it. Either they are the same thing uh, as, as Titus is given the qualifications of an elder, and then halfway through those qualifications it says, for a bishop must be. So it makes this connection between elders and bishops, a biblical connection. Do you know how many times the word pastor is mentioned in the New Testament? Who knows? One time. That's it. If you want to learn what a pastor is, you have to go to the book of Jeremiah. It's the only place it's talked about. I'm not giving you that distinction just to be controversial. You need to know that there's a distinction there, a biblical distinction. What Paul is doing is addressing Titus and and telling him to set things in order. And he did not tell him to go and appoint pastors. He told him to go and appoint elders. And he connects connects the word elders to bishops. And he says that there is a way that the Cretans live. And then there are the qualifications of this bishop or these bishops that you need to appoint. And notice it was plural. He didn't say appoint a bishop. He didn't say appoint a pastor. He said, I want you to appoint bishops in every city. (laughs) There were multiple of them. It's very different from the standard setup of our modern day Baptist churches. Now, why that is, I don't know. No one consulted me because I'm nobody. (laughs) So nobody cares what I think. But unfortunately, Baptist churches are moving in the direction of religion. And the further down that road you go, the more confused you're going to be. And when someone teaches you something that is religiously confused in the form of Bible doctrine, and then you go and teach it to somebody else, generation after generation after generation down the road, nobody's going to need a Bible. They'll just tell you what they think things are. Because nobody used the Bible to find out what, what this thing or idea or person was in the first place. I'm not doing that. I'm not buying into it. I'm not going down that road. I don't have a religious background. I don't have a Baptist background, though I am a Baptist. The church I came from is a Baptist church, but it is not a standard Baptist church. We believe the Bible, not what Baptists teach. There are some things that that Baptists teach. They're wonderful. They're good. They're strong. They are one of the, the, the last denominations left that at least pretend to care about the Bible. And I'm afraid we're getting too far into the pretending side and not, not, not enough on the actual believing side. And so, Lord willing, if I can help prevent that, even though my brethren won't be too happy about it, then that's just how it's going to have to be. 
I'm not going to stand in front of people and give them the, the Baptist traditional teaching when it is contrary to the Word of God. Look, look at, we hadn't got to this yet, but just look, everybody look at uh, the end of the book of Titus. Now, all of you in here were in my, my Preservation and History of the King James Bible class, right? And we talked about how as they put the Bible together, there were subject headings, footnotes, all these things that the King James translators put in the Bible, right? Who, who has a footnote at the end of Titus? What does it say? Monica, go ahead and read it for us. It was written Titus, the first bishop. The first what? Bishop. Look at the end of Second uh, Timothy. Is there a footnote there? Gross. What does it say? First what? Bishop. Now that information was put there by the King James translators based on the documents that they used to translate the Word of God, and they felt it was important that it be there. Printers include those footnotes and those headings, they want to put their own in so that they can make, uh, they can put a copyright protection on it. This, this particular Bible is a, is a Cambridge, you know, the, one, one of the older Cambridge versions, so it has it. All right, so what Baptist preachers do with that information, I have no idea. <laughs> I can't help that. <laughs> but I'll tell you what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to teach it as it is written. I'm not going to just make things up so that I can get along well with people. So, so either an elder is a bishop, either they are the same thing, or it, it, you could look at it as though an elder eventually is moved up or, or moved into what would be a bishop, a position for a bishop later. Those are two possible ways to look at it, but it looks like there's, looks like the passage is saying that an elder and a bishop is the same thing. So uh, you got to meet the qualifications. Then in Titus 1 verses 10 through 16, we're given the contrast to the, to the qualifications of an elder the unruly and vain talkers, most notably of the circumcision, need to be dealt with by a qualified individual. If you're not qualified, look, everyone is supposed to be living in such a way that when someone walks in the doors of that church and they start teaching something contrary to the word of God, contrary to the beliefs of that church, everyone should be willing to step up and say, I'm sorry, we don't believe that here. Somebody comes in and starts saying, you know, I think the church is going to go through the rapture. You should say, well, I think, very politely, you should shut your mouth. <laughs> it's fine that you think that. It's, it's, you, you are not required to agree with everything that is taught at this church. You are also not allowed to teach what you think should be taught at this church. Right? If, if, you, if you're given an opportunity to preach and you stand up and you say, well, I, I don't think Mary was a virgin. Well, nobody asked you what you thought about that. That is contrary to the word of God. Now, if Pastor Paul says it's okay for you to present your side of that issue, that's between you and Pastor Paul, which I doubt he would allow you to do. But if he says, no, we don't, we don't teach that here, you're, you're, it's fine if you think that you can attend this church, but you're not going to teach that here. That is not an acceptable doctrine to be spread in this assembly. So you don't, you don't get, to, you don't get to, to, to carry on with that. If you carry on, well, we're going to learn how to deal with you in Titus chapter 2. You're a heretic. You'll get a couple of admonitions, and if you don't accept the admonitions, then you are to be rejected and sent on your way. 
right? The, the, the problem is not that you disagree. Everybody in this church doesn't agree on everything. It's never going to happen. Everybody in any church is never going to agree on everything. The question is not whether you disagree or not. You can disagree, but you can't show up here and start teaching that as though it were the, the, the teachings and doctrines of this church. If I teach something and Pastor Paul comes to me later and says, brother, I, I don't agree with that. I don't think you should teach that. that I, at, he is the pastor of this church. I have to respect it. Even if I'm right, I don't get to say, well, you're wrong about it. I'm going to teach it anyways. That's not my, that's, that, that's, you're toying with God when you do that in a way that you don't want to toy with God. God is not as concerned with everybody having everything right as he is with that church being in unity. And if you show up and you start tearing apart the unity of that church because you think you found something that they hadn't found, then you got a problem. Now, if, if, I, if I taught something and Pastor Paul came and said, I, I don't think you should teach that here, and, and, and I thought it, need, it, 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 was a, it was a serious matter and needed to be taught, then what I would do is say, brother, I, I respect that, I understand, but um, if, if that can't be taught here, then I'm in the wrong place. And I appreciate the time and place you've given me here, but it's time for me to move on. I don't stay here and keep teaching something that he's asked not to teach He's the pastor. He's the one that has to make those final decisions about what is permissible to be taught here and what is not. All right. So all of us should be ready to, to, to make a defense of that sort when someone walks in and starts teaching contrary to the word of God. But you need someone particularly qualified to finally step in. It's, it's one thing if, if Gross and I approach some brother in the church and say, you know, we heard you've been teaching this or that, and, and uh, you're wrong about that. We need to show you from the Bible you're wrong about that. Well, I'm not the pastor. Gross is not the pastor. We can't tell him to leave. We can't, you know, that, that's between him and the pastor. But if it continues and we go to Pastor Paul and say, brother, we have talked to this man. He is continuing to teach doctrine that is contrary to the word of God. Now the, the bishop, the pastor, <laughs> whatever Baptists have made the leader of the church, needs to step in and say, look, this is your first admonition. Either you're going to stop teaching that or we're going to send you on your way. You get one or two admonitions according to the Bible, and then that man needs to be sent down the road. So the instruction given to Titus is to rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound. Now that's interesting, because it doesn't say they came in teaching the wrong information about baptism. They didn't come in teaching the wrong thing about the virgin birth or the deity of Christ. It says they were unruly. That's how they were acting. Right? And God, God told Titus, I want you to rebuke them so that they become sound. They stop acting unruly. It didn't say their doctrine was fixed. It says their attitude was fixed. You can't be in a church and be unruly and, and vain and, and causing problems. If you are, then you're going to have to be dealt with. The, the unity of that church is more important. Ideally, you want to work with them and try and help them see the error in their ways and try and help them along. And if they won't have it, what are you going to do? Let them stay and tear the church apart? No. The local assembly is far too important. Titus was to rebuke them sharply. And uh, this becomes significant in Titus chapter 2 because having sound doctrine 
mean, doesn't, doesn't mean you believe correctly. Being sound means the physical correction has been made so that you're living correctly. It means that, that, that some disorder and unruliness in your life has corrected and, and been made straight. The distinction between the qualifications of a bishop or an elder in Crete picks up in Titus chapter 2. The, writer, the writer's attention turns to Titus for further instruction. All right, so, so Paul, Paul opens up by saying, Titus, you're my son in the faith. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. To Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete. in Crete? Paul. Now again, this is, this is going to hurt the brain of the average Baptist you know, disciple. Because we have this mentality that God called me to preach, and God told me to go here, and God told me to do that, and God told me this, and God told me that. Shut up. <laughs> God didn't tell you anything. Now, it, as, we don't have time to look at it, but as you follow the order of the New Testament... Is, raise your hand if you believe the Bible. We, we did this in Sunday school. Let's do it again here. You believe the Bible? Don't be sheepish. It's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Paul said, I was called of Jesus Christ. Now, this is significant because Paul met Jesus Christ face to face. He can say that. Right? Every single person after that, let, let, me, let, me, let me show you just very quickly. I'll just read a few to you. 2 Timothy verse 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus. Anything about him being called? Timothy. No, nothing. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior. Okay, who, who made Paul an apostle? God. Christ. By the commandment of God. Okay, let's keep reading. By the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is in hope, unto Timothy, my own son after the faith. Any calling for Timothy? Nothing. Okay, let's look at, let's look at 1 Corinthians. That's a good one. Let's, let's see what happens here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, okay, here we go again. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Any calling for Sosthenes? Who sent Sosthenes to Corinth? Paul. Who sent Timothy to Ephesus? Paul. Titus to Crete. Paul. So this is how it works in the New Testament. Paul, Peter, James, John, they were called by Jesus Christ to do what they're doing. Very clearly, without a doubt, they, they met Jesus Christ face to face and he very clearly told them, this is what you're going to do. After that, everyone else was directed to go do something. By the, by the bishop, the apostle, the pastor. That's not how it works today. Instead, today we have this big emotional moment and we show up to church and we say, God's called me to preach. And now that I think God has called me to preach, 
you got to stay out of my way and treat me like I'm something special and send me where I want to go and pay for it and do all these different things that I think you should do. That is not how it worked in the Bible. Paul said, Titus, I need you to go to Crete. It's a mess, and I want you to straighten it out. Timothy, I need you to go to Ephesus. We're going to see, when we get to chapter 3, we have plenty of time for chapter 3, you're going to see all these names and all these people who are where they are because Paul told them, you go there. None of which because they showed up and said, God spoke to me. (laughs) Were you reading your Bible? So we we want this mystical, magical aspect of Christianity, and, and it's there. The Bible is far more practical than people want it to be. They want the magical. They want the mystical. They want to be able to show up and say, how special I am, God spoke to me. Well, if you were not reading your Bible, then I don't want to hear about it. Because I don't believe you. Uh, the, the attention turns to Titus for further instruction. And he says, but speak thou things which be. All right. So, so he's told in chapter one, these unruly men rebuke them so that they can be sound. But now we're going to see this progression of people who need to be ministered to in chapter two. Old men. Aged women. I won't say old women. I'll say aged women. Young women. Young men. I need you to minister to all of them, and the way you do that is to speak that which becomes sound doctrine. And here's what each group needs. They don't need a special Sunday school class or a special mentor or or any other garbage like that. They need a man who will stand in a pulpit and who will open the Word of God and teach them their responsibility from the Word of God. Now, the little details that they need here and there, you don't need some special class to teach women how to, how to act like women. But the aged women are expected to teach young women how to live like godly women. How you implement that is up to you. So Sunday school or, or special meetings, all these things that we do, We do that to try and create an organized and systematic way to do it. And if you have the people who are capable and ready of doing that, then you should do it. If you don't, then you should not. Not every church has the ability and the liberty to be able to have a special designated class for every single group or or individual or types of individuals in their church. So, So sometimes you need to regroup, bring everybody under one building... Teach them the word of God, build them in the faith, and then slowly break them out into individual classes where they might get some added benefit by by being in their little group. But generally speaking, separating people by their group identity is always a bad idea. It's rarely a good thing. Now, I'm not opposed to Sunday school classes and all these things. They have their benefit. If you're capable and ready as a church to be able to have them. If you're not, then you need to go sit down and regroup, start over, build people up, teach them, make them ready, then slowly break them out and see what's going on. If you don't have control of what's going on in those classes outside the main congregation, you're going to end up with a big mess on your hands. He says, but speak thou. 
So we're going to look at, at this in contrast to, the spe- to, 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 to all the speech given here more closely. Look, look at, so, look, so look at verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1, but speak thou. That's, that's the opening phrase. Now look at Titus 1, verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Notice it, it, was, it was not his doctrine, that is his teaching. It was sound doctrine that will convince the gainsayers. It was the manner of living that would convince the gainsayers. If all you do is approach somebody with doctrine, well, that's why they're there is to argue with you about doctrine. But when someone approaches them who has a sound life, that's very hard to argue against. That, that, that makes people shy away from being argumentative. They say, that there's something about this man's daily life. I don't want to argue with him. Even if I think he's wrong, <laughs> I'm just going to be quiet and uh, not argue. Um, what he is teaching is only half the equation. The other half is, his, is, is the manner in which he lives his life. If you live like a devil and teach the Bible, do you not see the problem with that? If you live like the devil but claim to belong to Jesus Christ, do you not see the problem with that? Th- that is insanity. Your brain is broken. Something is wrong with you. I, I, can, I can pretend to belong to someone who shed his blood to pay for sin. And go live in sin. <laughs> How? Something is wrong. Something is seriously wrong with you. If, if, if that's the case. And, and needs to be addressed. Now a gainsayer is one who contradicts or denies what is alleged an opposer. So they're going to take what you're saying and they're going to gainsay it. They're going to oppose it. They're going to contradict what's being taught from the pulpit or what you're saying or what you're teaching. Whatever, you're, whatever your doctrine is. Now look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, <laughs> especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, so houses, teaching things which ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Now ultimately, what is their aim? Money, gain, filthy lucre, uh, unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. All right, so, so we're, we're looking at the contrast between what Titus is supposed to speak and say versus what all the are saying. You have the gainsayers who are argumentative, and now you have the unruly and talkers and deceivers. Their mouths must be stopped. If you don't stop them, they subvert whole houses. Now, this is what they're going to do. They're not going to come in and say, I would like a meeting with the pastor. I disagree with something he taught Sunday, and I want to talk to him about it. It would be an honorable thing to do. You disagree, you want to talk to the pastor about it, you should go and you should address it. If the pastor is wrong, he should be corrected. If the pastor is right, you should be corrected. I, I, I teach a lot of things different than, than, than Pastor Keith and Pastor Paul. I tell them that. I'm not going to come, Quinto, can I come see you in the evening and, and we just have a talk? Don't tell anybody I'm coming. No, I'm not a coward. I'm not trying to subvert this church. I believe I have something I can add to it. I believe it will be helpful for you to hear a difference of opinion or a different idea and see it from a different viewpoint. And I'm going to teach it in that way until I am asked not to. But it's going to be open and it's going to be public so that they can know if they think they need to step in. I I, I am a beneficiary here. 
I didn't start this church. I didn't start any of the churches. I, I get to ride the coattails of, of, of Brother Keith, who has come here and done a great work. Though we might disagree on some teachings and things like that, but overall, Brother Keith, Brother Keith is a wonderful Christian. And I get, to, I, get to, I get to follow behind him and be a part of what he's done. Now, I'm going to be open and honest about what I believe in front of him. So if he thinks he needs to step in and say something, he has the ability to do that. But what these guys do is they come in and, and, they, and they, start, they start looking for, for weak members and they start looking for weak families and they start looking for people who are upset and disgruntled and, and, and think they've been done wrong and, and they're going to they're gonna play on those and they're going to try and take you away from, from the doctrines of this church. You should never be that person. You end up in another church somewhere and they teach contrary to what you teach. You either go talk to the pastor about it and see if it can be reconciled. And if it's, if it's not reconcilable for you, then you go somewhere else. You start your own church. Well, ladies, I mean, I don't encourage you to start your own church. But, <laughs> you know, you're in, a bit, you're in a little bit tougher situation. So, sorry. <laughs> um, so, they're, they're unruly. Vain talkers and deceivers. Their motive is filthy lucre. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. One of themselves, even a prophet of their, of their own, said the Cretans are always liars. Always liars. Evil beasts, slow bellies. That's a great term. This witness is true. That's what God says about them. Everything you just read in that verse, it's true. That's who the Cretans are. And so Paul said, said to Titus, look, um... I'm busy. I need you to go deal with those. <laughs> they're, they're liars. They're slow bellies. They're, they're, they're horrible people to deal with. But go get that church in order. And uh, send me a letter when you get it done. <laughs> but Titus was the man for the job. And he got it done. Praise the Lord. Uh, as far as we know, we don't read anything else about the church afterwards. But... Uh, they're always liars, evil beasts. Who wants to go minister to a bunch of people that God said are evil beasts? That's, that's, that's the life of missions. You give up your culture, you give up your life, you give up your comfort to go and, and minister to people that live completely contrary to you. Sometimes in better ways, sometimes in not better ways at all. But Jesus Christ shed his blood for those people. What are you going to do for your own convenience sake, not go give them the gospel? That's not acceptable. Titus didn't say, but, I, you know, I, I, I live in the Roman world. I'm a Roman citizen. You know, I, I have a comfortable life. I don't want to go to Crete. No, Paul said, I need you to go and set that church in order. It's a total mess. You're walking into a complete and total mess. I need you to go straighten it out. And Titus went and did just that. And that may be something that you are called on to do someday. Now, Jewish fables and commandments of men cause men to turn from the truth. That, that was one of the things that, that, that he was to be concerned about. Uh, look at verse 14. Um, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. They, they encourage people to leave the truth. And a great example of this is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, 
they are the number one producer of atheists in the world. I can't tell you how many atheists I've met, and when I talk to them and get their background, I would say maybe 70% of the time they were previously Roman Catholic. They see the emptiness. They see, you know, priests who, who are so holier than thou and not married and, you know, we, we, we are chaste and all this. Yeah, but you're molesting children. What, what, what is wrong with you? To the point that the Catholic Church gives more than, I believe it's $1 billion per year to the families of the children they violated to keep them quiet. How could you with any conscience at all remain in an organization like that? So they leave, and where are they going to go? They believe the Catholic Church was Christianity. So they turn to atheism. They don't believe there's a God. How can there be a God when the person who's supposed to be teaching me, helping me to know God, is in the back room violating children? And, and, and so these Jewish fables and commandments of men, they, they, when, when you're following a, a fable and a commandment of men, it's going to fall apart, and then you're going to be left shattered. All these people... It's completely made up religion. Mormonism. Joseph Smith was a con man who was arrested and kicked out of the state he lived in. He was not allowed to return because he was a con artist. So he went, ended up down in Utah in, in America and started an entire religion. He literally said, I found tons of, of weight worth of gold tablets. Tablets. I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? And then on those gold tablets were Egyptian hieroglyphics written on them that he couldn't read unless he took his hat off. Now listen, if you're a Mormon, you believe this. He took his hat off, put it over his eyes, and then he could read the tablets. When they have a conscience of crisis or a crisis of conscience, what what are they going to do? Where will they turn? And it's one of the biggest religions in America, and it's spreading here, the, 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 church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You see their signs and their people walking all around Uganda. That's the Mormons. They don't believe Jesus is God. They believe he is a God, and that you can become a God, and then you can take a female God and use her to impregnate an entire universe. Ladies, you want to sign up for that? That sounds like a... <laughs> then says, you know, good godly doctrine, like you need to find a woman that will allow you to help impregnate her so that you can, you can fill an entire universe, your own personal universe. <laughs> and up until, up until about a decade ago, you could have as many wives as you wanted in the Mormon religion. But see, Americans had a hard time buying into that, so they got rid of that whole as many wives as you want thing so they can be a little more palatable. How can you just remove that doctrine from your beliefs? You just, you know, we could be a little more mainstream if we got rid of this whole, you know, several wives thing. (laughs) And and even worse, even worse, it was one of the most racist religions in existence. If you were black, you could not join. Well, they fixed that because... You know, Americans don't like that whole separating black people and white people thing. So we've got to get rid of that doctrine and throw that out the door also. Like, well, what else are you going to change? That, that's commandments of men. You're just making stuff up. Because they make a lot of money. And so if we want to keep making money and keep our religious hold on people, we've got to find the little 
the doctrines that, that offend people and just kind of sneakily move those out the back door and pretend like we didn't do that. And that's exactly what they do. And that's exactly how they do it. All right, so fables that cause men to lose hope in the idea that they might actually be able to know God, so they turn from the truth. Uh, Baptist churches are now headed down this road. Shallow and weak Bible teaching alongside domineering women who refuse to live in a place of submission is causing our churches to turn people away. People are looking for truth. And the truth is God established an order. And the entire world is, is, is so broken right now and plunged into confusion because that order, that order has been completely wiped away. And the last place you should be able to find it is in a Bible-believing church. But we have women. I want to have my say. Well, tough. God didn't give you a say. In fact, God told you to keep silent in the church. Now, I don't know how any of that was handled here, but I am going to handle it from a biblical perspective. And if it offends you, it's because you are more influenced by the doctrines of this world than you are by the Bible and the Word of God. It is not a a negative thing that God wanted you to be silent in the church as a woman. There is a place that God gave to women and a place that God gave to men. And when both assume their positions in life, everything works beautifully. When one oversteps their bounds or one doesn't hold up to their end of of God's expectations, everything falls apart. It's not that you've got to keep silent because you're you're some uh, um, um, lesser vessel that is not important. That's not that's not. That is the wrong way to look at it. God has given, women can give birth to human beings. Do you know what an incredible thing that is? My wife, two babies came out of her physical body. (laughs) That is amazing. And then the time she spends with them, teaching them and training them, because she is a godly woman who wants to raise godly children, those children have a balanced perspective in life because she has a husband who assumes leadership the way God, hopefully, the way God expects. I don't want to speak speak too loud and make it seem like I'm doing too well. (laughs) But my wife, not not a bone of contention in her. She is just a she is a she is a wonderful godly woman who takes care of our home to the best of her ability. And it shows in, in the peace in our home, in, in, in the, 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 the way our children act, our relationship together. We're not fighting each other. We're moving together in the right direction. And we're both playing the part that God gave us to play as we go there. That's the way it works. It's not I'm a man. You shut up and listen to me. That, that's if you're in a place like that, you're in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you play that game if you want to. <laughs> uh, you play stupid games, you win stupid rewards. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, that's, not, that's not how it was set up. That's not the point. Churches are filled with domineering women who think that they need to have a And as long as that's the case, and as long as men are too weak and cowardly to confront that, then, then it should, they're just going to get consumed and it's fall apart. Uh, people are hungry for something real and authentic. Otherwise, it's nothing more than a Jewish fable or the commandments of men. 
People, people will join ISIS and kill people because ISIS really believes what they say they believe. And they'll fight for it. They want to come into a church not full of people who are willing to kill people. Say, this is what I believe. Now come look at my life and see if it matches what I said I believe. And when it does, there's something so real and so all that that it overwhelms people and they know this is what I'm looking for. But when what's being said doesn't match what's, what's being done, they say, this is just another it's just another fake place full of fake people. And it's not what I want. Verse 16. They prefer works. They deny him being abominable and, and dis, uh, disobedient. And unto every good work reprobate. Now think about that phrase. They're doing good works. And unto every good work reprobate. It doesn't matter how much you think you're doing. If, if you're not abiding by, by God's word, you're going to end up in a, in a really strange place, led there by Jewish fables or the commandments of men. And it's all going to fall apart at some point. And so, so you have this contrast between what all these people are saying, these various groups. And it's very interesting the way Titus is laid out. Is in chapter 1, you have, Titus, I need you to go to Crete. And set this place in order. Here's what you're up against. You know, Jewish fables. Uh, Cretans who are liars and slow bellies and evil bees. And, and, and he gives them this list of people that he's going to have to confront and he's going to have to deal with. But if you look at chapter 2 verse 1. But speak thou. Do you see the direction? How we just changed directions. So we went from Titus. Get, put, 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 get your sword out. Put your armor on. You're going to have to do some battle. You're going to have to fight. I want you to go to Crete. I want you to set that place in order. Here's who you're going to face. Here's who you're going to deal with. Then we get to chapter 2. But. <laughs> As you deal with those and you get that dealt with. But. The aged men. The aged women. The young women. The young men. This is what they need. Now you're not fighting battles. Now you're ministering to people from a wide spectrum all of whom need you to minister to them. Need you to give them the word of God. Need you to teach them the word of God. Need you to build them up so that we can get rid of the slow bellies and the fables and, 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 the, and the unruly and all this garbage that we're dealing with in chapter 1. They got to be confronted. They might get mad and leave. Oh well, goodbye. If you're not going to conform, then get out. This is not the place for you. But then as we get over here, well now we've got a foundation of people. And we're going to teach these people. And we're going to build these people. We're going to help them to be grounded and rooted in the truth of the word of God. That's where they're going to get their help. And so that, that's, that's what Titus was. And that's the contrast as you compare the speech of people. Titus 1 that, to that of Titus and things which he, he was supposed to speak that become sound doctrine. Sound doctrine would convince the, the gainsayers. It would, it would deal with the unruly and subvert, who subvert whole households. It would deal with the Cretans who are always liars. It would deal with the Jewish fables and commandments of men. It would deal with them who profess to know God but live like a reprobate. All of these compared to, to, to words which become sound doctrine. This is the contrast. If you know Jesus Christ, as we're going to see in a moment, when salvation came, it taught us something. 
when the salvation of God came teaching us, it set things apart for us. But you have to make the choice which direction you're going. Because what it did was split your life. You got the old man and you got the new man, and they're both there. Which one are you going to, to, to live after? Which one are you going to go after? And so you've got to make that decision. So, so first the minister has to make available to you the truth and to build you up. And he's got to deal with the people who would subvert you and try and harm you in the truth. And then you've got to decide, am I going to go over here and be subverted? Or am I going to go over here and be built up in the truth and learn the word of God? That's a personal decision that every single person has to make. And needs to be made. From here, the Bible would go on to list the wide range of types of people that men in positions of leadership must minister to. Must minister to. I find it interesting that children are not mentioned in this. I guess my, my assumption is the reason they're not, minister, they're not mentioned is um, that God probably expects mom and dad to do that at home. Now, in a perfect world with a perfect family, that's, that, that, that family should be held accountable to do that. It is my job to teach my children. It is not this church's job to teach my children. I don't know what's being taught in that Sunday school class. I, I presume that Pastor Paul has, has gone through the proper vetting and, and, and put the right people in place and that the children in that classroom are not being allowed to take over and, and teach what they want in that classroom and that, the, that the, the men in that classroom are good godly men not being led by women and that the women in that classroom are submissive to the men the way the Bible expects. And if all that is not taking place, my daughter and my son are not going to be there. It's my job to teach them what it means to be godly children. It's not your job. It's not the church's job. It's not the government's job. It's not the school's job. It's your job. Those are your children. That is your responsibility. Uganda has a big problem with children. They pack them up and they send them off to a boarding school across the country. You have no idea what's being done to them, what they are being taught what they are seeing, what they are listening to, what is happening to them, you have no clue and you won't know until it's far too late. That is a dangerous way to live life. That's a dangerous way to treat your children. And so, as you might guess, I don't encourage such. Okay, we got 45 minutes and we're in verse 2. That the aged man be sober, grave, temperate, Sound in faith, in charity, in patience. All right, so this is, he, he says, Titus, I want you to go. I want you to find the aged men. Now, now <laughs> there are a lot of ideas about this phrase also. I, I, don't, I don't know what happens, again, you know, I, I don't know what happens to people's brains when they read the words that are in this book. They read the words and then they say, somebody over here told me this, so believe what this says I'm going to take that and put it here <laughs> why would you do that what does aged men mean it means old men it says nothing about whether they're saved men not saved men if they're older in the faith not older in the faith it says if the, the aged men in that church this is how they are to act right 
Do, do you see how beautiful it is when you just let it say what it says? Instead of, so what did God mean by this? It means what it says. Period. And when someone tells you, well, I know what this says, but what it means is you should immediately cut off every word coming out of the rest of their mouth. Their mouth. Every word that comes out from after that means absolutely nothing. It is simply their opinion. And if people can't teach the Bible better than that, they should not be standing behind a pulpit. They should go get a job and stop telling people that they're Bible teachers. But they're not going to do that. The aged men. I mean, honestly, there could be nothing less controversial in the Bible than saying aged men means old people. He says, Titus, this is how they are to act. Now, these are the elderly men in your church. This is a resource Uganda has very little of. You are one of the youngest nations on the planet. And it shows. You just think about your daily interaction. How often do you actually see elderly men? There are not many. That's a serious problem. It means that you, as a younger crowd, as younger people in this church, you're going to have to mature quickly. The reason you can get people in this country to say Idi Amin was good for our country is because they're young and ignorant. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. The way you get an entire country to turn a pop singer into your next presidential candidate is because they're young and immature. They don't know what they're doing. And that immaturity is going to, it's going to show in every level of life. It can't show here. Not in the Bible-believing church. You're going, to have to st- you're going to have to separate yourself from the societal immaturity that you're subject to every time you step outside your door. The aged men should be sober, not intoxicated or overpowered by spiritous liquors, not drunken. Half the time when I do meet older men, they're drunk. In 2016 or 2015, Uganda was declared by the United Nations to be the drunkest country on earth. So when you take that high level of immaturity, you mix it with some loud speakers, which apparently everybody can get, and then you mix it with alcohol. That's a recipe for disaster. One of the number one killers in the world is alcohol. Uh, many of you know, we, uh, you know we, we like to occasionally go eat at Plot 99. A, a coffee bar and restaurant in town. It's one of the few restaurants in town that Mzungus go to and feel like we're... Yeah. <laughs> and um, they're, they're big... It's an NGO. And their big, their big deal is we have no plastics here. Well, well you, ha- you do have some plastics, but okay, all right. Well, why don't you have plastics? Well, don't you know plastics kill millions of people per year? No, that's not true. It's not true at all. One day I was talking to one of the young ladies that works there. I said, you know, you you won't sell or you claim you won't sell plastic. And most of the time you don't. Sometimes you do. But most of the time you don't. But you sell alcohol. And she just says, yeah, what's wrong with that? (laughs) You have no idea. So I went home and looked it up just to show her. 
And they say, if you, if you read enough websites, you can sort of find some numbers. They suggest not plastic, but people who live close to landfills, the places where all your trash is dumped. Between 400,000 and 1 million people die from living near a landfill per year. What does that have to do with plastic? Of course people are going to die if they live next to the landfill. It's disgusting. <laughs> All right, so now, and then you think about this range. 400,000 to 1 million? Not 400 to 450,000. 400,000 to 1 million. You're just making stuff up. You don't get a 600,000 person range if you have real numbers. You're just trying to make it look like your cause actually exists and it doesn't. Okay, so if, we say, if, we're, if we're favorable to you and we say that one million people per year who live next to landfills, not who are killed by plastic, but live next to landfills, die because of their proximity to the landfill. Okay, let's give that to you. You know how many people die on average per year from alcohol? Three million people. How come you don't have an NGO here trying to stop people from drinking alcohol? Why do you have an NGO here trying to not sell plastic? <laughs> As though having, I mean, and, and then think about this. I, so what'd you do to stop the, 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 the world from dying from plastic? I started a restaurant. Okay. What'd the restaurant do? We didn't sell plastic. Uh, all right. Uh, but what about all the other people who were selling? Yeah, they still sold plastic, but we didn't sell plastic. All right, well, way to go. Good job. Now, sobriety doesn't just mean drunkenness or drug use. Sobriety means keeping control of your emotions. God says the aged men need to be sober. No alcohol and regulate your emotions. Don't let yourself get out of control. The aged men should be, should be grave. That means dignified and somber in manner or character and committed to keeping promises of great gravity or crucial import requiring serious thought. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And if it's defined in the statement how you're going to do it, do it. If it turns out you made a bad decision and you should chose to do that, do it anyways. Keep your word. Ugandans are very quick to say, yeah, I'll do that. And then later when you say, why didn't you do that? Well, I need more money. I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be this. I didn't know it was going to be that. You, you, I depended upon you. You promised you were going to do that. And now you didn't call me. You didn't negotiate. You didn't say, uh, that's not how it works here. You didn't say anything. You just didn't show up and didn't do it. And now that I'm trying to find out what's going on, you have this long list of excuses. Keep your promises. There's something higher here than, look, sometimes I promise to do things and then I get halfway through it and I'm like, I should not have promised to do this. I made a mistake. The person that I said yes to didn't make the mistake. I made the mistake. And because I made the mistake, I'm going to finish it. I won't do it again. But I'm going to finish what I said I was going to do, Lord willing, to the best of my ability. The aged men are to be grave 
It'll be sober, it'll be grave, temperate, moderate in the indulgence of the appetites and passions as temperate in eating and drinking, temperate in pleasures, temperate in speech, cool, calm, not marked with passion, not violent as a temperate discourse or address. So anytime there's an accident, all Ugandans go out the window. All it takes is one car wreck with blood showing and everybody's out there with their cameras taking pictures and acting like this is something people want to see. Temperate. Keep control of yourself. Now, now I am, you, you're going to have to, as I say some of these things, some of you are going to be offended because I've been here long enough to get to know Ugandans and, and I'm taking out my frustration in this class. <laughs> You're supposed to be different from all of that. Many of you grew up in this church. Many of you have been in this church for years. Some, most of you have been here long enough to, to know the difference between a Bible-believing Christian and a Ugandan. If, if you belong to Christ, you don't get to be American or Ugandan or Chinese. You don't get to be associated with your flesh anymore. You're a Christian. You belong to the church of God. So as we go through this, you're going to have to make those distinctions or you're going to be offended. But what I'm saying is true. And I don't want you to be that because that is ungodly. And if this same class was being held in America, I would have an entirely different list of frustrations to take out on the congregation. Because being American is not being Christian. Americans don't even know what a man and a woman is anymore. We have a woman sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States of America, the highest court in the land. She was asked, what is a woman? And her answer was, I'm not a biologist. I don't know. All right, so we'd have a whole different list of issues to deal with if we were sitting in America right now. But we're not. I'm talking to Ugandans. And I don't want you to be Ugandan. I want you to be Bible-believing Christians. There's a big difference between the two. Sound in faith. Titus 1, 13 through 14. Look at, look at that real quick. Verses 13 and 14. This witness is true. Wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. How did that old man get there? Somebody rebuked him along the way and helped correct him. And now he's sound in the faith. Or at least he should be. And if he's not, guess what needs to happen? <laughs> He needs to be rebuked so he can get there. Sound in the faith. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 13. We're not going to turn there, but it says sound words in faith and love. So, so when you rebuke someone so that they become sound in the faith, and, and you have to understand, rebuke is not just an opportunity to rip somebody's face off. It's I, I love you. I want to help you. There are some things from the Bible that you need to deal with so that you can be sound in the faith. Right now, you're not. It's not just an opportunity to to malign somebody or give them a hard time. It's meant for loving correction. It's important. And, and, and And it's a staple aspect of the Christian life. You're supposed to rebuke each other. You're supposed to rebuke me. I'm supposed to rebuke you. We all rebuke each other so that we can all... Bring ourselves in accord with the word of God and make sure that we're moving in the right direction and know that we're around people who are serious. I can't play with this sin or this idea because Brother Bombali will come say something. 
I want that. My friends in life, they are not people who will tell me what I want to hear. <laughs> they are people who will tell me what I need to hear, and that's a big difference. Those are the friends that I want. I don't want somebody who's just going to, when somebody comes, they go, oh, Brother Thomas, you're so wonderful. What do you want? I'm going to hold on to my pockets until you leave. <laughs> Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks Brother Thomas is so wonderful and great and, and heroic. Something is wrong with you or you're up to something. I, I want people who are going to be honest with me and tell me where they think I am and what they think needs to be fixed. If they see something, brother, can I talk to you about this? The Bible says this and I saw you do this the other day. What's going on? All right, I, I don't want people in my life who are just going to just tell me what they think I want to hear. Those people always are up to no good. It might feel good to have the flattery, but if you do that to me, I'm watching you. I don't want you around my family. I don't want you around my home because you're up to something. Nobody does that. Nobody thinks that. Nobody lives that way. They only act that way because they're trying to get close to you to get something. They're too cowardly to say, can I borrow 50,000 shillings? And, and I'm, I'm not putting up with it. So you shouldn't either. Sound in patience. The Bible says tribulation worketh patience. Who wants patience? Well, how are you going to get there? How you become sound in patience? You've got to go through some tribulation. And this is, a, this is one of the, the other misnomers about the Christian life. When I got saved, I, I, I don't know where I got this idea from. I really thought all my problems were going to be solved. I, I don't know where that idea came from. I was just so happy and excited. And, and, and if you think I'm aggressive now, you, you didn't know me before I trusted in Jesus Christ. I was a violent reprobate. And then suddenly I trusted in Jesus Christ and I could drive to work happy and I, can, I could do all these things. And, and, and then it occurred to me, wait a minute, I still have problems. Why do I still have problems? I thought Jesus was going to take all these problems away and, and everything's going to be great. I'm going to be happy all the time. I'm never going to have trouble. Then I started learning in the Bible. God said, I'm going to teach you how to glory through that tribulation. He didn't say, I'm going to make sure you're happy by taking away all your tribulation. I'm going to teach you God, I, me. I'm going to teach you how to go through that tribulation and be joyful. I don't want to learn that. <laughs> but that's how it is. And that's a blessing. And here's the illustration. Jesus is asleep on the back of a ship. A boat. And a storm comes that is so powerful they call it Erocladen. <laughs> when you give a storm a name, it's serious. And the disciples wake him up and said, we're going to die. Will you do something? But what always puzzled me is he rebuked them. And he said, why do you have no faith? Now, if you put all this together, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God said, we're going to get in this boat and we're going to cross the Sea of Galilee together. He didn't say there wouldn't be a massive storm. Along the way. 
He expected them to believe whether it was calm or whether that storm was there, we are going to the other side just as he said. And when they didn't believe him, he rebuked them. That's life. I am keeping you. Jesus Christ says, I am your life. Your life is hid with me. I'm going to come back and get you. But I didn't say there wouldn't be some storms along the way. Patience. That's where it comes from. Verses 3 through 5. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. Good, that's interesting, just no, good at what? Just, just, just be good, please. <laughs> good, obedient to their own husbands, Obedient to their own husbands, not somebody else's husband, not your boss at work, not the school principal, your husband. If you don't have a husband, then your father. And if your father is a reprobate that can't be trusted, then you better find a man that, you, that, that, that can assume that position in your life and be obedient to him until you find a husband. Obedient to their own husbands. That the word of God be not blasphemed. That is amazing. And all that we go through here, it is the behavior of the aged women that God connects to blaspheming the word of God. That's incredible to me. So if the aged women will act in a, in, in a godly manner, well, what's that godly manner? It's right here. Uh, be in behavior that becometh holiness. Not false accusers, not given to wine, much wine, teachers of good things, uh, uh, that, they be, that they teach the young women. So, so it's, it's this connection between the aged women and the young women. God says, however your women act, it will cause people to either love the word of God or to blaspheme the word of God. <laughs> Glad you got that responsibility and not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The aged women. We move from aged men to aged women, and we do so because there are clear distinctions between the two. So if you're an American or European and you're listening to this audio and you don't know what a man is and what a woman is, you need a Bible. Because God didn't say the aged women, the aged men, and then those odd creatures somewhere in between that don't know if they're a male or a female. It doesn't exist. You are a male or you are a female. You might choose to enter into this world of doctrinal confusion. That's up to you. But the word of God still stands. And God said, I want you to address the men. And then I want you to address the women. Because they're different. And I have expectations for both of them. Both are important. Neither gets left out. This distinction is not only made in the Bible when referring to the physical, biological markers, but also to the role, attitude, dress code of each. God expects women to act like women and men to act like men. In fact, if you're a man and you're effeminate, do you know what the word effeminate means? The Bible says the word effeminate, it's when a man takes on female characteristics and that, that those characteristics According to the definition, 
are to be rebuked. When you see a man doing that or acting in a way that pertains to a woman or dressing the way a woman dresses, the Bible says he's effeminate and it needs to be rebuked. Do you know why millions of people today are confused whether a man can be a man and a woman can be a woman? Because nobody rebuked them when the man started doing the little things that pertain to a woman and the woman started doing the little things that pertain to a man. Way back when those lines should have been drawn a long time ago, they started to say, well, you know, women can wear jeans. It's okay. It's just, it's a modern era. Let women dress, you know. They want to be comfortable. Well, how is it you can only be comfortable in a pair of skin-tight jeans that show off every feature of your body? How is it that comfort went from there to exposed flesh and other parts of your body out there for everybody to see? That's comfort? No. This, this goes back to what we talked about a moment ago. Men were too weak to tell women, God gave you a way to dress, and God gave me a way to dress. And in this church, and in my house, that's what we're doing. And when those lines start to be blurred just a little bit, it may not seem like a big deal today, but what about the next generation? And then the generation after that, and the generation after that. And now in America, we went from fundamentalism, where Baptist churches dressed right, lived right, taught right, to now they're debating on whether you should ordain women to be pastors. Women dress in ways in church that are disgusting, and nobody can say anything about it, but if you do, you're bigoted, you're mean, you're sexist. Well, then you're going to have to call me all those things because the Bible makes the decision. I'm going to make it. Women are not to be in positions of authority. Oops. You go through the entire Bible. You start with the book of Numbers. I mean, you can go back further, but you start with the book of Numbers. When God was establishing leadership and separating people for his military and government, who did he call on every single time? Men. You want godly men in positions of leadership. You don't want women in positions of leadership. Could, could you? So, so right now, America has one of the weakest presidents in, in our entire history. And what is Russia and China doing? Whatever they want. Is the female president of Germany going to stop them? No. Is the female president of New Zealand going to stop them? No, they don't care what those, those women have to say. And you can think this is sexist all you want. But this is how God set it up. Men need to be out there confronting men. We have a weak man. We have a complete clown female for our vice president. China and Russia don't take, take that serious. So they're going to do what they want. That is just as sinful as a woman taking authority. So here, here's where the, the balance comes in. Okay, it's easy to pick on women, women who take authority, women who speak up, they're loud, they interject, they put themselves in positions of leadership they should not be in. It's very easy to condemn them. But where are the men who are supposed to be there? Where are the weak, 
cowardly men that are, that, that, that are supposed to be there who would have helped keep those women in a proper place of subjection and in a godly order had they done what they were supposed to do. It's not enough to just rebuke the women and tell them, you, you know, go back to your hole, get back in the kitchen. <laughs> that, that's, that's not it. Where are the men who are supposed to be here? Why does a woman feel like she needs to step up and do this man's job, which she should not feel like? And if she does, she should get control of those feelings and not do it. But where are the men who are supposed to be there? That's the problem. The fact that women step up and take those positions unrightfully, that's the outworking of the problem. Weak men is the problem. Now, again, I'm going to talk about Uganda. Remember, you're not Ugandans, you're Christians. <laughs> I have not seen more weak men in my entire life than in Uganda. I have not seen more beggarly men in my entire life than I have in Uganda. Somebody owes me. Why don't you give me? I need a Coke. Get a job. Like you, 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 would, you would throw all your manly dignity out the window for a Coke? Like I, I've seen you. I've been out here street preaching for an hour and a half, and you've done nothing but sit there on a motorcycle. If you want, to go, if you want a Coke, go earn one. Be a man. You coward. So you're going to have to break away from this, this weak cowardly, somebody owes me, somebody else should take care of me mentality. And you've got to adopt a biblical mentality that says, God said, I am responsible for me. In fact, God said, if a man provide not for his own, especially they of his own household, he is worse than an infidel and hath denied the faith. So women taking positions of leadership is a serious problem. Men not taking those positions of leaderships is an even worse problem. Men are to lead, not drive. Women are commanded by God to be submissive, but there is no punishment given for rebellious women. So what do you do if she doesn't, she doesn't follow you? Be a better man. Look, you need to be someone she will follow. There are two, two parts to this. First of all, you need to make sure you're, you're dealing with a godly woman. Because if you're not, you have no chance in this. If there is nothing implanted in her mind and encouraged by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that she has a responsibility to be submissive to her husband and you're trying to get her to be submissive, <laughs> good luck. Let me know how that works out. So that's the first part. The second part, having assumed you, made, you took care to be with a good woman, you need to be a godly man that she is willing to follow and willing to lead. You can't sit at home and be a deadbeat and say, you're supposed to be submissive to me. I mean, you can, but it's not going to work. I, I have never in my life, I, I, I watched a newscast in Uganda of men were letting the news interview them because their wives were beating them. If my wife was beating me, you think I'd be on the news telling the whole world? Now, it turns out they were all drunkards and their wives were fed up with it. Now, should the wife be beating the men? 
No. Should that man be a drunkard and a loser who's probably draining their house of all their money? No. You don't get to have it both ways. Now, if you've stepped up and you're being a good godly man and she refuses to submit to you, now we have a real verifiable spiritual problem that needs to be dealt with. But if you're not going to step up and be a man, who wants to submit to you, you coward? Who wants to submit to weak men? Look, look at the world stage right now. What's happening while weak men are in charge? The strong men are rising up and doing what they want. Now, I, I can't stand Donald Trump. But what did Russia do while Donald Trump was president? They sat quietly and kept their mouth shut. Because while he is obnoxious and he is not exactly Christ-like character, he's a strong man. And on the world stage, everybody knew if you cross America, that man is going to deal with you. Iran tested it one time, and they didn't do it again. They paid dearly. If you don't have strong men, who's going to follow you? But you want to be strong men in godly terms. And, and, and that's an important distinction. Uh, we do not force submission. We lead in such a way that the relevant women in your life submit to you. My wife trusts me. That's why she's submissive to me. I don't go home and say, woman, this is what you're going to do today. <laughs> that, that's, 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 that's barbaric. You're, you're not here to force women into submission. You are here to be so Christ-like that she says, that's a man that I want to follow. Women are not to dress like men, and men should not dress like women. You would think you don't need to say that. But that has to be hammered into people's heads today because we're way down the road from there. We're not just dealing with men dressing like women and women dressing like men. We're dealing with men who are telling you, no, I'm a woman. <laughs> no, that's, that, I don't think you understand how this works. No, no, I know you don't understand how this works. We're way past just the dressing issue. They physically believe I am a woman and you need to call me her, she. And in Canada, if you don't do that, you can be given a fine. If you don't pay that fine, you can be put in jail because you didn't use someone's preferred pronouns. And if you don't think that's coming here, as soon as Museveni said you're going to get life in prison, actually it was the death penalty for being a homosexual in Uganda, the whole world caved down on him. And he said, okay, we'll back off. We'll make it life in prison. But that's it. You can't have that kind of policy and exist in this world. They're going to hammer away at your society until they get rid of that. You can go online. You can find YouTube documentaries about how persecuted homosexuals are in Uganda. They're going to hammer away at your society until your society overturns that thinking. So if you can't do something as simple as dress like a lady, what do you think is going to happen when they come and start telling you that he is a lady? A man should not be effeminate. These are just basic biblical ideas. 
Failure to go the extra mile here begins to blur the line between male and female. Then a generation or two down the road, you will not be able to distinguish between them. You've never been through an international airport, I presume. Uh, We have. And we often play this game called Guess That Gender. What is that? I'm looking at a human being, but I don't know if it's a male or a female. Do you know why they look like that? Because nobody told them women dress this way and men dress that way. And they don't wear each other's clothes. They don't cross those lines. And failure to keep that distinction is going to allow confusion to abound. It seems like a little detail. It's just you're being so legalistic. No, I'm not. I'm trying to help you. And if you don't believe me, give it 10 years. And then I want you to think back to this class. (laughs) When you see somebody and you say, what is that? (laughs) When I first came to Uganda in 2016 in Masaka, I never saw a woman wearing jeans. How does it look today? That was the society. Where do you think it goes from here? So, God is so old-fashioned. The aged men are given clear instructions, and the aged women are also given very clear instructions to follow. Africa, in general, does believe that gender roles are separate. That's a, that's a, while many African societies are matriarchal, women dominate the society, there's still the idea that, that there are things that women do and things that men do. There is still that, that division. Now, the fact that it's a matriarchal society is bad. That means you're, you know, do you know what the Bible says? Woe unto that nation when, when women and children become your leaders. God said, woe unto that nation. The world says, oh, look at the women in political power. We're so progressive. We're doing so good. God said, woe unto you. (laughs) You don't know what's coming. You don't want to do that. But it's too late. Rwanda. You know, Paul Kagame is an interesting character. But Paul Kagame, as hard-nosed as he can be, Rwanda has more women in positions of political power than any country in the world. Now, they think that's a good thing. God said, woe unto that nation. So, ladies, you know... The world is going to give you these aspirations to adopt power. That's not a biblical aspiration. And, and be careful about the women you follow. How, how can you follow? How can an aged woman teach you how to be a wife when she never got married? How can an aged woman teach you to love your husband when she's never had a husband? How can an aged woman teach you how to take care of your children when she's never had children? And, and when a woman refuses to get married, there's a problem there. All right, now there, there's two parts to this, and I want to be fair. You have those women who, who believe in the book of, who are, who are well grounded in the book of 1 Corinthians, and they, they want to just spend their entire life serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. That's a good thing. The Bible says you can do more as a single person to serve the Lord than you can if you're, if you're married. And if that's their reasoning, praise the Lord. 
But if it's not, and for most of them, I would say 99%, it's not. They want a husband, but they demand that their husband come to them, give up his life, and do what they want. They are not willing to give up their life and go do what a husband wants. That's an ungodly order. It's not that. That is a woman you should not spend too much time around. You should be very careful with. Uh, pastors. I mean, we don't, that didn't need to be said. But what about missionaries? How is it that a, that, that a woman can't be a pastor, but somehow she can be a missionary? And what is she going to do when she gets to the field? Organize churches? No, first, how is she going to get to the field? Is she going to go get in a pulpit and usurp authority over the men in that congregation and present her ministry to them? That's what's happening. That's where we are. And everyone thinks it's a good thing. And God's telling you, I did not set it up that way. That's not good. That is indicative of a very serious spiritual problem. So, behavior has become with holiness. I got two minutes. Let me get through a few of these. You will see the instruction regarding women deal primarily with outward appearance and attitude all through the Bible. That's so interesting. Because women are emotional creatures. But God deals with the outworking and not the internal. That, 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 that's, just, that's amazing to me. Men are highly visual in nature. The outward look and attitude of a woman can get men in serious trouble. Ladies, you can really help men out by making sure you're dressed modestly. That doesn't mean you're responsible for how men respond to how you're dressed. But God does put a measure of accountability on women based on how they dress and how they act. If, if a man, if you dress modestly and a man still looks at you inappropriately, that's between him and God. You did your part to dress like a lady. Generally speaking, if a society has strong and modest women, promiscuity will, be, will, will rarely exist. Because that, it's, it's the visual cues from women that cause men to say, this is somewhere I can stay and play. And when they see a bunch of women, well-dressed, well-ordered, not out roaming around, getting into things they shouldn't be getting in, what they're going to say is, we need to go to the next town. There's, nothing, there's no fun here. Well, praise the Lord. Hit the road before we help you hit the road. In societies where the women are loose and immodest, promiscuity abounds in abundance. Now, that is not to blame women, but that is to say, if the women hold fast in modesty, dirty men go somewhere else. There's nothing for me here. And uh, we'll run some cross-references when we come back. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.